The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I remind you again at the end of the service. Well, today is a very, very special day for us here at Jacobswell Church. Um, about eight years ago, we planted Jacobswell Church, and as we thought about planting Jacobswell, one of our big, hairy, audacious goals that we talk about was to plant four churches over the course of 10 years, so to plant four churches by 2020, and that seemed like a very outlandish goal. Well, about five years ago, we were able to plant a church in Appleton called Emmaus Road Church, which is doing well and thriving, Um, and then Emmaus Road is actually planting a church in Oshkosh with Pastor Josh Galaxon, who's going to be speaking to us this morning. So in some ways, it is going to be our grandchild, this church, and we're very excited about how the gospel is going forth down the corridor of Highway 41. And then, of course, we're looking to plant a church on the east side by fall of next year. And so God, ahead of schedule by two years, is helping us to spread the kingdom of God uh, through planting churches Um, four churches over the course of eight years, and we're very, very excited about that. And so we're very excited this morning to have Josh come and share with us from God's Word. Uh, As you hear him, I'd encourage you to pray for him, pray for the church plant in Oshkosh. If you know anybody in Oshkosh looking for a church or even somebody not looking for a church because they're not at church, uh, please feel free to connect them to Pastor Josh. He is a a great man. He loves the Lord. Uh, He loves to teach the Word, and so we're so thankful for him. If you would come forward, Josh would love just to pray for you and what God is calling you to do down in Oshkosh. Lord God, thank you so much for bringing laborers, Lord, bringing laborers to, to, to sow the good news of the gospel, Lord. God, pray that you would continue to bear fruit in Green Bay, in Appleton, in Oshkosh, and beyond, Lord, that many might come to know you, rejoice in you, and God, that we would serve you and worship you with all of our hearts, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you would bless Josh's efforts and his family and all who go with him uh, to go and plant this church, Lord. Pray, God, that you would continue to plant churches even out of this church. We pray for the next church plant, that the gospel might continue to go forth, that your word might be preached, and that people might know you and know one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Grandpa Dan. Well, I do have to actually give Dan a hard time to... uh, Maybe God's trying to humble him. I, I gave him glowing praise in the first service because he said my last name like three or four times and he said it perfect every time. And he said it once this time and he kind of butchered it. So um, <laughs> it's Golaxon. And he might have done that on purpose, um, knowing him. But yeah, Golaxon. It's not uh, Golaxon or Golaxon or Golaxon. But if you say all those things, it's totally fine. Um, well, it is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, excited to, to be here to share God's word with you. There are some really exciting things going on in Wisconsin with church planting. Uh, it's a great, great to be a part of it. And uh, excited for what the Lord has in store for us in Oshkosh and what he has in store here in Green Bay for, for your church. We will be continuing in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts we're looking today at Acts chapter 9, verses 31 to 43. And the title of the sermon is Looking for Peace in All the Wrong Places. And you can see uh, where those pages are in your Bibles there. You can turn there. We'll, we'll get there in a few minutes. Um, but I want to begin uh, sharing with you a little bit. Uh, some of you might not know, uh, my family spent about 10 years in China. Uh, we were over there. We were missionaries over in China. And uh, one of my favorite things to do was to have conversations with taxi drivers, um, when I first moved to Beijing, that was a very difficult task because the Chinese taxi driver, Beijing taxi drivers are specifically notorious for not really opening their mouths when they talk. So it kind of sounds like they have marbles in their mouths and, and it's kind of hard to understand them. But once your language gets a little better and you can, you know, communicate and interact, it's fun to start having conversations. And, you know, inevitably they would talk to me about America and, you know, say things like, oh, all Americans own guns or all Americans are Christians or, all, you know, all these things that are kind of out there, and I would always kind of try to turn the conversation in a, in a spiritual direction, and sometimes that was really easy to do. There'd be, you know, taxi drivers who would have like a Buddhist prayer wheel thing sitting on their dashboard, or they'd have something hanging from their mirror, and so I would, you know, just ask like, oh, so you're a Buddhist? Oh, yeah, 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 and, you know, then kind of ask a few more questions, and like, well, like, are you really a Buddhist? 
well, well, you know, and most of them are like, oh, it's just kind of, it's like a good luck charm. And probably in my 10 years there, I maybe encountered one or two people who were like, I'm really a Buddhist. Like, I really practice it. I really do it. Um, and then moving back to America after all that time and coming back here, it's been really interesting to kind of see this whole craze going on right now in America with Buddhism. Uh, you know, it's, it's Zen everything all over the place, right? Like you go to Spotify, Spotify radio, and there's the Zen channel, and, and there's all the Zen exercises, and just this Zen, this, then that, all over the place. And, uh, you know, it, I get it. Like, I get that people are, are trying to, to find something different. Uh, they're trying to find peace and, and comfort and um, just relaxation from the rat race of life. Like, it makes sense. I get it. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong for us to want to seek peace in our lives, to want to have some quiet and have things, um, you know, just less, less crazy and less stressful. But what if we are looking for peace in all the wrong places? What if in all of our pursuits, we're actually missing the mark? You know, we do, we desire peace. We desire peace in our relationships with other people, in our marriages, in our communities, in our nation. But the reality is, is that we are often divided. Our relationships are fractured. Our, our government is fractured. Uh, there's, there's a lack of peace all over the place. And sometimes it feels like the harder we try to pursue peace, the harder we try to get people to come together, the deeper the wedge is actually driven and people are just driven farther apart. So the question that we are faced with, I think the question that has faced every civilization that's ever lived, every people group that's ever lived, is where is true peace found? When cultures collide, when worlds collide, which they have always done, how will people figure out how to exist side by side and not destroy one another? While this isn't the central theme of the book of Acts, it's certainly a topic that is addressed throughout the book of Acts. As the followers of Jesus received power from the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, there is this continuing narrative in the book of Acts of cultures coming together and cultures colliding. Question is, how will the Jewish converts to Christianity and the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, how will they peacefully coexist and be on mission together as the people of God? Now, if you've studied Acts or read through the book of Acts, you'll see that it's kind of geographically and chronologically ordered in this way. The first seven chapters focus on events that happened in Jerusalem with mostly a Jewish audience. And then now here where we're at in chapters 8 through 12, the gospel is spreading out from Jerusalem. It's going to Judea and into Samaria. And it's going, increasingly going to a Gentile or to a non-Jewish audience. Uh, chapters 8 to 12 mostly focus on the ministry of Peter. And then from, chapters, from chapter 13 to the end of the book, the shift is going to kind of start going to, to the ends of the earth. You're going to see Paul on his missionary journeys. So we kind of have this like geographic and chronological uh, shift from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And just you keep that in mind. I, I don't want us to lose sight of kind of that big picture context, um, but we're going to kind of narrow our focus in here this morning. We're going to recap verse 31, which you looked at last week, and then we're going to look at two stories. Uh, it's Peter healing um, a paralyzed man and then raising a woman to life. So the three main points that we're going to be looking at this morning are a proclamation leading to peace, a healing leading to repentance, and a restoration leading to faith. And those are in your bulletin if you're following along or taking notes. So we'll read together now from God's word, Acts 9, verses 31 to 43. And please pay attention to the reading of God's word. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. 
And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was, staying, while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word that you have given to us, that we can look to you, we can learn from you, we can hear your word delivered to us. God, open our eyes to see you for who you are. Give us hearts that desire to know you, that desire to grow in our relationship with you, and that desire to go out and spread this good news and share it with those around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, first, we're going to see a proclamation leading to peace. After Paul's conversion in Acts, the beginning of Acts 9, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. That's in verse 20. And then we saw him preaching boldly in the name of the Lord in verse 28. Well, this proclamation, which we've seen in Acts up to this point, we saw uh, Peter and John early on in the book preaching the gospel, and then we saw Stephen and Philip in the chapters just before this preaching the gospel, and now it's, it's continuing on. The gospel's continuing to be preached as Saul is converted, and God calls him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentile audiences, and this is a fulfillment of the mission that God gave his people in the Old Testament. God told the people of Israel that they would be a light to the nations in the book of Isaiah. That was the call. They were supposed to be witnesses to all those nations around them. And now it's the job of the church. The church now has this call to take up this task to be a light to the nations. But instead of it being just one ethnic group that would go out and witness to all the other ethnic groups, now it is one nation, what we are called a holy nation as the church. It's one body made up of people from many different ethnic groups that are called to go out and spread the gospel to all the peoples of the world. And the call that we have, it's, it's to go and to proclaim peace, to proclaim reconciliation with God and reconciliation with other people. Uh, most evangelical scholars would argue, and I think they're right, that the primary method by which the church grows in the book of Acts is through the preaching of the word. It is through proclamation, through that message being shared, that message being declared. And we saw that in Acts chapter 6, when the deacons were chosen to serve because the apostles didn't want to give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Uh, Now, I know Dan, in his sermon on that, talked about uh, the importance of serving tables, of, of mercy ministry, of people stepping up and doing those things. And the reason is so that those who have been tasked with the preaching of the word can focus their time and energy on the preaching of the word and on that proclamation. So, so that serving and that proclamation, those things go hand in hand and those things are really important uh, for the word to go forth. But primarily, I think we see here in the book of Acts, that it is through the preaching and the proclamation of the word that the church grows and that its influence spreads in the world. And we see that here in Verse 31, we see the effects of that proclamation. Verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we see these things. We see peace. We see the church being built up. People are walking in the fear of the Lord, comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the church is multiplying. Uh, these These are wonderful things that are happening. 
Uh, two weeks ago, I've, I've been listening to some of Dan's sermons to kind of prepare for this. Two weeks ago, he talked about how we seek comfort and pleasure, and oftentimes, I think this is what he's talking about, his hot tub. Uh, and oftentimes our comforts in this life can paralyze us from seeing the big picture and being on board with God's mission. And he argued that the gospel scatters triumphantly, not from comfort, but from discomfort. Um, Dan, wherever you're at, I want to come and sit in your hot tub and, yeah, you can be uncomfortable while I'm enjoying it. But anyways, the, so Dan's arguing that the gospel spreads through discomfort. So what's going on here? Did he just, did he read chapter, up to chapter 8 and then forget to keep reading in chapter 9? Like, didn't he see here what Luke is saying about what happened in the church in Acts 9.31? Doesn't he know that peace and comfort are what God has in store for his church? And remember, I said, I said seeking peace and comfort is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I know Dan loves sports illustrations, and so I had to, I had to get one sports illustration in here. Uh, in 2008, I lived in Beijing during the, the Summer Olympics, and uh, it was a it was a really incredible time to be there to kind of witness all the construction going on. And uh, I was serving on a campus where they hosted the wrestling, uh, the wrestling tournaments. And um, I actually was able to get tickets to the gold medal uh, Greco-Roman heavyweight match, which was really cool. And so I got to go, go watch that. Uh, just fun times, a lot of crazy stuff going on all around. Uh, but the the theme of the, the 2008 Summer Olympics, if you remember, was one world, one dream. And it was interesting being in China because, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy about China's role in the world and just how, you know, united we are and things they were doing to their own people and all these. I'm not going to get into all those things. But, you know, this, this kind of this Eastern, you know, peaceful, like harmonious, like theme, one world, one dream. And it, and it sounds really good, right? It looks really good uh, on the outside. Um, and interestingly, part of the, the mission statement of the International Olympic Committee, so I don't think this was just like, you know, China's idea. The mission of the International Olympic Committee is t- to cooperate with the competent public or private organizations and authorities in the endeavor to place sport at the service of humanity and thereby to promote peace. Now that is a great mission. That's a great goal. I'm not trying to criticize the International Olympic Committee for wanting to promote peace in the world. But why in their 122 years of existence has the world not become a more peaceful place from the Olympic Games? Why was the 20th century the bloodiest century that we have seen in the history of the world and they were around during that whole time? And if the church here uh, in Acts experienced this peace and comfort, why didn't it last? What happened that this peace and comfort that we read about here in Acts 9.31, that we're not seeing that to this day, that we didn't see that after this? Well, could it be that the peace and comfort that Luke is describing here is not the same type of peace and comfort that we often seek? It's not the same type of peace and comfort that the International Olympic Committee would like to see happen in this world. Or we as followers of Christ are, you know, we're often tempted to seek peace in the world um, and maybe, you know, not in the way that God has Uh, ordered for us. We need to ask ourselves this morning, where are we seeking our peace and our comfort? Are we seeking peace and comfort in our families, uh, in our jobs, in our recreation? Do we look outside and say, man, I can't wait till that snow melts so the kids can go out and play and all these different things? Or, you know, our bank accounts, are we saying, I can't wait till we can get that lake house and all these different things? Those are not bad things. I'm not saying we shouldn't want peace in those areas of our lives and comfort in those areas of our lives. It's not wrong to have them, but ultimately our hope for true peace, our hope for true comfort cannot be in those external things. I think the scripture points us in a different direction, and I believe that Acts 9.31 is speaking about spiritual realities that the church experiences. Because if we keep reading in the book of Acts, it doesn't take long before things really start to shake up quite a bit. In chapter 12, Herod is going to put uh, James to death with the sword. Peter is going to be put in prison. 
And I don't think we can walk away from the book of Acts thinking that if we just become a follower of Jesus, then we just have this smooth road paved for us for the rest of our lives. And we're going we're gonna to find peace and comfort and everything's just going to go well. Uh, verse 31 and then these two accounts that follow, they are not arguments for a health and wealth gospel. They're not arguments, they're not promises that say, well, if you just put your trust in Christ, then everything in your life is going to fall into place and you're going to have money and you're going to have health and all. That's not what it's teaching. So I hope we can see that uh, today. And, and the question is, why not? <laughs> if, if this says uh, these things were happening, why didn't they last? And if you all are, you know, look at your own lives and your own heart, it's it's a pretty easy answer. It's a little word that we don't always like to talk about, a three-letter word, and it's, it's called sin. Uh, it, sin destroys everything. It destroys relationships. It destroys countries. It destroys everything. Um, but sin is not, doesn't have the final word. So that's the problem, um, and we'll, we'll come to the solution um, one, of the, one of the fun things about being a guest preacher, and I, I like going into new places because I'm like, oh, I can kind of do what I want to do. I'll mix things up. I'll do things a little bit uh, differently. And, uh, you know, if they don't invite me back, then, hey, that's all right. Um, but a lot of, you know, I, I love to quote from commentaries, and I've been, you know, told, like, you read too long of quotes from commentaries. Um, so I'm not going to read you these really long quotes from commentaries today as much as I love commentaries. But there's kind of a different type of commentary that I don't think we often think about, and we don't often maybe realize that it is a commentary. Uh, For those of us who are familiar with the PCA and the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith is basically just a commentary on Scripture. Um, It's explaining what the Bible teaches. There's 30-some chapters, and it's broken up into different parts, and it's it's a great uh, thing to read. You can can go find it online, and um, they, they took the the confession, and then they, they shortened it down into uh, there's a larger catechism and then there's a, a shorter catechism. And the catechism is basically just short question and answers that kind of distill the, the confession down into, into short yeah, questions and answers. And um, I think it's, it's a really great way. It's great to, to learn with kids. There is actually a children's version of it. Uh, it's great just to kind of remember those things and be able to, to answer questions. So we're going to walk through some of those today. Uh, I think this will be fun and maybe whet your appetite to, to go and, and look up the, uh, the catechism. And, and I, I know some people, they hear the word catechism and they're like, oh my gosh, like what is this guy talking about? Um, I grew up in a, in a Catholic church and I know the word catechism for me was like scary, like going to class with these mean old ladies and you know, catechism is just a question and answer. This is fun. It's not going to be scary. So we're going to have a couple uh, questions up here on the, on the screen. So the first question, we're talking about sin. What does every sin deserve is the question. Answer, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. That doesn't sound very enjoyable. But as I said, we're not, I'm not just putting this up here and saying, well, there you go. I'm not going to leave you with the bad news. I'm, I'm telling you the problem, but I'm also going to tell you the solution which God has provided. And that comes to us in the next question, question number 85. Question, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Answer, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Now that's kind of a mouthful, and we're going to unpack that, so don't worry. Uh, We're going to be looking at examples here in this passage of faith in Jesus Christ, of repentance unto life, especially in these next two accounts. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the third element, what this outward and ordinary uh, means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption, what that is. So second main point is a healing leading to repentance. And here in verses 32 to 35, we're introduced to a man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed for eight years. Now, I can't imagine laying in my bed for eight years. I love to sleep. I love sleeping in and laying in bed for till noon sometimes. If, you know, I had a long night with the kids or whatever, if my wife will let me. Um, But 
I can't imagine laying in my bed for eight years. That would be very hard. And I can't imagine Aeneas thought he would ever walk again after being paralyzed for eight years. But Peter comes, uh, Peter finds him, and he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And as we saw last week in Paul's conversion, this word rise is used. It's used many times in this chapter. Um, Jesus appears to Paul and, and he is blinded. He tells him to, to rise and to go. And then Jesus tells Aeneas to go and to meet with Paul and that he will open his eyes. He tells Aeneas, or sorry, Ananias, Ananias to rise and go and meet Paul. And then after Paul regains his sight, it says that he rose and was baptized. So we see this, this theme of rising, of rising up and standing up and, and going. Um, so he rose, and then we see in verse 35 that all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, for those of you uh, geeky people out there who are reading along in your Greek New Testaments this morning... Um, that's a joke. You're wondering why I call this a healing leading to repentance when this word here for turned is actually not the Greek word for repentance. Well, this word here for turned, it's used several times in the New Testament, and it basically carries with it the same meaning as repentance. Uh, It means to cause a person to change belief with focus upon that to which one turns, uh, to cause to change belief, to cause to turn to. Uh, Luke also uses it in his gospel account in Luke 1.16 when he says that John the Baptist will cause many of the people of Israel to turn to the Lord their God. So there's this idea of, of turning to God, of repenting. Then Peter uses this word in connection with the word for repentance in his sermon in Acts 3.19 and 20 when he said, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So repentance and turning to the Lord, as we see here, they're really the same thing. One commentator says, Repentance affects the totality of man's existence. It reaches the inner depths of his being and touches all his external relations with God and with his neighbor. Repentance is a turning away from sin. Faith is a turning to God. And Peter tells the people here to, Peter tells the people, this is in Acts 3, to turn to God, which in simpler language is repent and believe. And that's the very message that Jesus began his ministry with. If you remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus, when he began his ministry, said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance and faith, or repenting and believing, they're really two sides of the same coin. Uh, repentance, you know, you hear that word, that's not really a very popular word in our day, in our, in our culture. Uh, we live in this you know, quick fix culture where we want, things to, we want things to change quickly without having to put in a lot of the work, um, without having to maybe change our thinking, or without having to change our behavior. Uh, I don't know about you guys, I don't know if you have ever clicked on one of those ads, you know, that pop up for like weight loss pill, like the magic pill, or, you know, uh, for guys, it's the take this pill for three weeks and you're going to have a ripped six pack and like you don't even have to get off your couch, it's just this magic pill. Um, I've done that before because I, you know, it's kind of fun to like follow their arguments and then see like the testimonials of like, you know, these pictures of people, it's just crazy, but I, I think that's kind of entertaining. But that's, that's the world we live in. That's the message we hear. Like, oh, here, you know, this change is just this instant. You don't have to do anything. You're just going to be, you're going to be better. You're going to be ripped. You're going to look amazing. Um, and that's, we all know that's not true. I mean, we all see that and we're just like, yeah, right, you know. But people buy into that. People, people want that quick fix. They want something in their life to change without having to put in the work. And you know, I think it's fitting as the month of January is coming to an end here. We're kind of coming up on the first month. Some of us are probably looking back at maybe our New Year's resolutions that we made. You know, how are we doing? Um, and I think when we think about New Year's resolutions, really New Year's resolutions are all about repentance, right? 
I mean, it's, it's about changing something. It's about changing your thinking or changing your behavior. Uh, you know, maybe we look at it as, oh, I'm trying to improve in something versus I'm trying to change. But really, it's, it's about repentance, right? It's about doing something we used to do and, and aren't doing anymore or starting to do something that we've never done that we know we should have always been doing. Uh, that's, that's really what a New Year's resolution is. But the question is, why is it so hard for us? Why is it so hard for us to, to get back on the right track or, or to change our behavior and to, to, do, to be more disciplined, to do these things that we know we should be doing? Well, just as there is a difference, as I said, between the kind of peace that the world seeks and true spiritual peace, I think there's also a difference between the type of changes that we attempt to seek in our daily lives through our own effort, with diet, exercise, whatever, There's a difference between those things, and then there's a difference between those and true spiritual change. Uh, One requires us to try on our own strength, to try very hard to change our own lives, to pull up our own bootstraps and and just nose to the grindstone. But the other way seeks change from outside of ourselves. Well, let's see here how the confession helps us to understand this kind of repentance. Question number 87. What is repentance unto life? And the answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now again, that's kind of a mouthful. I really want to focus on this first part of the first sentence in the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Now, why does it say that? It's because we can't make this happen on our own. It is a supernatural work of God, and it is a gift of God. It is something that the Holy Spirit must do, must work in our lives by the grace of God. And the other thing about this is, like some people think, oh yeah, I, you know, I prayed a prayer and I, I, I became a Christian in you know, 1985 or whatever and I repented from my sin. Well, it's not just enough to, to say I repented of my sin 30 some years ago. Repentance is, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the, the first of his 95 Theses, which is quoted very often He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So it's this idea of continual repentance, continually turning to the Lord on a day-by-day basis, maybe even hourly, um, just being reminded that we need to turn to the Lord. And Luther also emphasized that inward repentance, that's the changing of our, of our hearts and of our minds, that it leads to outward repentance. It leads to our actions and our behaviors being changed. Our, our behavior should change, okay? If you are a Christian, your behavior should change. It should always be changing. We should always be growing. And I think in our circles, we're sometimes a little bit like, leery of this, we're, we're, I think rightly we're critical of something that people have cleverly called therapeutic moralistic deism. It's a type of Christianity that says uh, we, just need to, we just need to try harder. We just need to make people feel good. We just need to tell people, you know, it's all, it's all God's grace. You don't need to do anything. Just sit back, relax, you know, try hard when you want to. That's not the gospel, <laughs> And we get the gospel wrong when we reverse that order. Um, we, don't, we don't do good things in order to be accepted by God. But we do good and we change our behavior as a, work, as a result of the work that God graciously by his spirit has already done in our hearts. And this is, this is what Luther and the reformers were, were vehemently opposed to at the time of the Reformation. They saw those things being reversed, and that was causing many difficulties in the church. And um, I'd encourage you to, to go study that. Read the 95 Theses um, if you're interested in that. It's an interesting time in, in the history of the church. But, but they were concerned that um, you know, the emphasis was... Uh, putting, putting man's effort first and then trying to talk about God after that. So we can't mix that order up. 
our discipleship, our growth and grace, they are 100% a result of God's grace freely given to us in Christ. So if you're here today, if you're a Christian, if you're struggling in your faith, if you're saying, I want to be more like Jesus, I really want to grow, I really want to change, I just feel like I'm constantly struggling in sin, like I'm constantly spinning my wheels, no matter what I do, everything in my life just falls apart, it caves in, I want to encourage you that I'm not telling you this morning, well, you just need to try hard, you need to repent hard, you're not repenting enough, that's not what I'm telling you, you need to you need to rest in God's grace and trust him to give you the strength, to give you the power to, to repent and to turn from your sins. And it's not, just, it's not just, oh, I did this thing, I gotta say this prayer and repent and then, you know, I'm good for a week. It, it is an ongoing battle. And, you know, some of us are struggling with some heavy stuff and that's, it's a daily grind, it's a daily battle, but it's not something that we're left to do on our own strength. And also that, it doesn't mean that there's not effort involved in the Christian life. There is effort involved. We do need to try hard by the grace of God. We, maybe it's, you know, setting up an accountability group or whatever you need to do. Um, you know what you need to do. We, we all know what we need to be doing that we're not doing. But it's not about relying on our own effort. It's not about trying harder on our own, own effort. It's about trusting the grace of God to give us the power to do those things. And if you're not a Christian... And you're sitting here saying, what is this guy talking about? You know, I'm a pretty good person. I don't think I need to change. I don't, you know, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't robbed the bank. You know, I'm, I don't cheat on my taxes. Um, trust me, I know what you're thinking. I spent most of my life feeling that same way. Like, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't do a lot of bad things. Um, until I was confronted with the reality of, of what we've been talking about, what sin deserves, and that God does have a standard that is infinitely higher than what we think and how we ought to live. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you. Um, I'd love to talk with you. Any of the elders would love to talk with you about what it means to, to give, that, give your sin over to God, to trust him to make you a new person, to let him work in you and not to, to think, I'm okay, I can just do it on my own. And wherever we're at this morning, I think we would all do well to pause and ask ourselves, in what areas of our life is God calling us to repentance? In what areas should we be turning or returning to him today? And as, as it says, endeavoring after new obedience. Um, that's, that's a really interesting phrase, that endeavoring after new obedience. You know, maybe there's something we know we should be obeying God in and we're not. God, help me to endeavor after new obedience. Well, just as repentance is a saving grace and a gift of God, so is faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in our third point, a restoration leading to faith. And we saw how the confession defines repentance. Now let's see how it defines faith, which is the other side of the coin. Question 86, what is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, just as repentance it's a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Um, I just want to say one thing quick too. The, the confession and the, the catechism, these were like, these were like hammered out over years of like debating over every little word. Like this isn't just like, you know, some high school kid didn't just like sit down and like write this out in five minutes. I, I just love the language. I love the wording. And I, I changed it for all of you. I took off all the like, um, you know, receiveth and resteth and I made it contemporary English. So, uh, but these, the, it's just such rich language that is, is really getting at the heart of what we believe and what we proclaim. And so again, I would encourage you to, to dig into that. But again, we see here, uh, the word saving grace. And the emphasis here, is, again, is that this is a work of God. And we see that in these words, receiving and resting upon him alone for our salvation. Those are not works. Those are not things that we uh, must do in order to earn God's grace, earn his favor, to, to get enough faith. It's not about our effort. It's a saving grace. It's all of his work graciously given to us. And Paul lays this out in one of my favorite passages in all of scripture in Ephesians 2, where he explains that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. 
We were like Tabitha here in Acts chapter 9. Her body is laying there on, in the upper room, laying on this bed, probably a, a cold, hard bed. Her body is cold and lifeless. And that was a picture of our spiritual state left to ourselves, left in our sin. Ephesians 2 starts off, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up. It's the same thing that Peter did to Tabitha. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Tabitha had nothing to boast in. She was dead. She couldn't boast. She couldn't talk about, the widows are standing around showing Peter all these things, she, these tunics, these garments that she had, she had made. Peter didn't say, oh, looky here, how nice, these are so beautiful, what a nice lady, she served these widows. She didn't deserve to die, oh, I'm going to raise her up because she's such a great, no, that's not what Peter said. Now, she did a lot of wonderful things and she served, but she didn't have anything to boast in. Peter didn't come and raise her from the dead because she was just this, the best person in the city. God raising her up, raising her to life was purely by his grace. And it's a picture of what we receive in Christ when we trust in him and, what we, and when we believe in him. And we're told that after she was presented alive, that it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith wasn't just in the fact that they saw a dead person raised to life. Make no mistake, just like Lazarus in John 11 after Jesus raised him from the dead, Tabitha's physical body was going to die again. Now, I have no idea how much longer she lived. Maybe it was 20 years. Maybe it was five years. But all of those people who saw her raised from the dead, they didn't say, oh, I believe in her raised body because her body was going to die again. And for all of us, unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, we are all going to die. Every single person sitting in this room, we're all going to die. Our physical bodies are going to die and we need to be reminded of that. Our faith is not in us being able to, even if we saw someone raised from the dead, it's not enough to see an individual person, and obviously we'll get to another person who was raised from the dead that we put our faith in. But uh, Dan, a, a couple of weeks ago, again, I was listening to some of his sermons, uh, he he quoted a, a sports commentator who said, Father time is undefeated. Uh, and he was talking about athletes who, uh, you know, and probably NFL, you know, you don't see like 45-year-old quarterbacks, um, except maybe Vinny, Vinny Testaverde who made a comeback. Uh, or you don't see, you know, running backs playing into their mid-30s because bodies break down. And there's always someone younger and faster and, and more agile. And that's, that's the reality of, of, of our lives and of our bodies. So father time is undefeated and physical death is also undefeated. Again, we're all going to face it. Everyone who has ever lived has faced it before us. But the good news that we proclaim and the message that propelled these early Christians out into the world in the book of Acts is that death does not have the final word. There is one who defeated death. And the result for us who repent and believe is that death is dead. That death has been defeated. And that though we will still face physical death as a result of sin, we don't need to face ultimate spiritual death because God in his grace has provided a way out. He has provided a way for us to beat death. So I want to ask us this morning, is this our faith? Are we receiving and resting upon the resurrected Christ alone for our salvation? 
like the crowds who saw Aeneas and Tabitha raised from the dead, are we turning to the Lord and believing in him? Faith and repentance, as I said, are two sides of the same coin. Uh, I want to emphasize there's kind of another coin. There's two sides to another coin. When we think about the good news, when we think about eternal life and living forever, I think sometimes it's easy to say, oh, well, I'm just going to go to heaven when I die. I'm going to be with the Lord. And we, we kind of neglect our, our life here. We neglect the reality of what God wants to do in the here and now in our lives. And we just kind of have this like mentality that, well, I'll just wait till heaven and then everything will be, be good. Um, but I think, there's, I think there's another side to that coin. And we're going to look at the next question uh, in the catechism, question 80, 88. It says, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So these outward and ordinary means that it's talking about here, it's, it's discipleship, it's sanctification, it's, it's growing in our relationship with the Lord. And this happens in the day-to-day grind of life. It's, it's ordinary. Um, look at these things, the word and sacraments and prayer. You know, again, we live in this, this quick-fix society. You know, as great as it would be to, to come here every Sunday and see someone healed from paralysis or to, to go to some rally and see someone raised from the dead, we don't need those things to confirm our faith. We don't need to, to trust in those kinds of miraculous events that most of us are probably never going uh, to see to realize that God is, is working in our lives. No, it happens in the ordinary day-to-day life of word, sacraments, and prayer. And, you know, here it's, the confession says that they're, they're ordinary means and, uh, you know, that that's what it's talking about, just regular day-to-day. But they are also extraordinary because it is through these things that the Holy Spirit works, that the Holy Spirit strengthens us and causes us to grow in our relationship with the Lord. It's through the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and through praying with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we are reminded of our need for repentance, our need for faith, and that we are assured of the forgiveness that we have through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that is really one of the main reasons that we gather here on Sunday morning. Uh, it's not just to come and, and feel good, to feel better about ourselves, to sing some nice songs and then go home. Uh, it's, it is to hear the word preached. It's to, to participate in the sacraments. It's to pray with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and that's how we grow. And that's how we become more like Christ. And that's how we come to an understanding of what true peace with God is and what true peace with others is. And that's how we can go out into the world and proclaim that message. And I think this is the reason why the elders chose to go through the book of Acts for this season and to, to share with you as a church and to encourage you as a church that this is the body of Christ in action. This is how we grow. This is how we have an impact on the world around us. So I want to ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, have we experienced this peace, this peace with God that passes all understanding? Is this our reality? We look around us and the world around us is continuing to rage in unbelief and confusion. Will we, in the midst of that confusion, will we be those who, by God's grace, can show the world around us what true peace really is? Will we go out from here this morning and next Sunday and the Sunday after that using these ordinary means of grace to grow in our faith? Will we rise up and be challenged to go out and call those around us to be reconciled to God, to find true peace with him and true peace with each other? That is my challenge for you this morning. Let's pray. God, we live in a world that is looking for peace in all the wrong places. And we know as your people that true peace is only found in you. It is only found in being reconciled to the Father 
through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, would you cause us, each one of us in this room, to grow in our love for you, to grow in our understanding of our relationships with you. Would you send us out from here, Lord, to be your ambassadors, to be bold witnesses to those around us, to call people back to you, to show them where true peace is found. I pray for Jacob's Well Church. God, would you continue to use them in Green Bay and the surrounding area. Continue to, to let them be a light. Continue to, to grow them, uh, not just outwardly in, in numbers and in outward influence. Uh, continue to grow them deep uh, down, deep-rooted in you and in your word, that they would, they would know you more, they would love you more, and they would serve you more wholeheartedly. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Golaxon. Did I say correctly? All right, very good. All right. Well, we're excited about the ministry God's calling you to in Oshkosh. Um, Augustine famously said that our hearts are restless till we find our rest in God. And we find that rest in God through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection and res- re- reconciling us to God. If you're here today and you trust in Christ for your salvation, if you have found that peace that surpasses all understanding, this meal is for you as an ordinary means of grace in which God feeds his people, reminds them of his love and his grace. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to the disciples and said, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is given for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here today and you trust in Christ for your salvation, take this, reminding yourself of the peace that you have with God through Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, we are so glad you are here. We're hoping that you would know this peace, but we ask that you would not partake of these elements at this time, but that you would take it one day genuinely in faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to have several uh, stations set up throughout the sanctuary uh, during this time when Pastor Chad is playing. Uh, when your heart is ready, please go and partake of, uh, go and take the elements, bring them back to your seat, and we'll partake together. Uh, if you have mobility issues, please feel free just to raise your hand, and they'll bring it to you uh, after the crowds kind of die down. Um, but we'll bring it back, and then we'll partake together as one body, the body of Christ. <laughs>